As we continue our series, Following the Shepherd, we're looking at the life of David each and every week. And last week we came to what was a quite majestic passage. We've actually had quite the run-up of majestic passages. We had the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, and uh, we saw the uh, people rejoicing and David leading the people and worshiping God. Of course, David is the king now at this stage, and uh, God is using him, and God has exalted him tremendously. And then last week, of course, we looked here in 2 Samuel, and chapter 7, we looked at the Davidic covenant. We looked at the promise that God had made to David about what would happen in his life, and then what would happen in the life of his son, who would be the next king. And then we looked all the way down through the ages to all of the promised kings from the line of David and how ultimately that would be fulfilled in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who we just sang about, the King of Kings. So this morning, we pick up David's response. David hears the word from the prophet Nathan of what God has promised to do in his life and everything he plans to do in the future. And David stops, and he's overwhelmed by the goodness and grace of God. We should back up a little bit. If you would, read with me here what God promised, just to remind ourselves. 2 Samuel 7, and look at verse number 12. 2 Samuel 7, and I want to begin down in verse number 12. And when thy days be fulfilled, David, God promises, when... When you sleep with your fathers, when, you're, when you die, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy... My mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established, would you say it, forever. Established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. What a promise. What a promise he's been given. Verse 17, according to all these words... And according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. Now notice verse number 18. We see David's response, and this is where we pick up our text this morning. Verse 18, then went King David in and sat before the Lord, and he said, who am I? O Lord God, and what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? Who am I? Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would bless the teaching of the word this morning. Lord, I pray that you'd give us open ears, and but more importantly, open hearts, that we would allow you to speak to us. We would see the, the power in the word. I pray that we'd get a glimpse of who you are and your glory and and who we are, just like David did. And so I pray that you'd help me now. I pray that you'd help us as a church as we study together. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Who am I, he says. He receives this overwhelming promise, and I'm reminded of the words. If you remember, we've been using the 23rd Psalm as the guide for this whole study in the seasons of David's life. And I couldn't help but think of what he says in Psalm 23, verse number 5, where David says in his his psalm to the Lord, Psalm 23, 5, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup. You know what it says. We don't have it up there, but you know what it says. My cup what? My cup runneth over. I'd like to speak to you this morning about that, that topic, my cup is running over. What do you imagine when you just read through that, the the scripture there in Psalm 23, David says, there's a table prepared before me. 
We've all seen a, we've all been a part of a beautiful meal or a wonderful meal with a beautiful table spread out before us. And it's just the idea of bounty and blessing and satisfaction. And he says that not only is there a table uh, prepared before me in the presence of mine enemies, doesn't that symbolize what we've seen as David's, David's kingdom has been exalted? There's all these nations around him. And it's as if the, he's the king now and the, he's just sitting at this banquet table of the Lord while all the enemies are round about and they just can't explain why. How could this happen to somebody like David? David wasn't some great person. He didn't come from some great family. He came from an in, in, insignificant background. And everyone watches as David just sits with the table spread before him. He says, he says God, you've prepared a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. We saw the, 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 he's the anointed king. We spoke a little bit about that on Wednesday. And then he gives that picture, my cup runneth over. Is my cup runneth over. You know, you imagine that he's got a, um, that there's, there's, you're sitting at the table and the idea of the cup running over is it's just filled to capacity. Can you fit any more? Can you get any more in it? No, it just keeps running over, running over, running over. Listen, friends, David, what David said has got to be true for us today. If you look around your life, you look at who you are and where you came from and what God has done, all of us can say, my cup is running over. That God has been good. He has been so, so good to me. Has he been good to you this morning? And we see David and his response. How does a person respond when they realize that their cup is running over? How should we respond when we stop and understand that our cup is running over? Well, obviously the background here is what we just read. It's that covenant that God has made. And David's just blown away. You notice he walks in, and what was his posture? As he walked in, what did he do? He sat down. He just sat down as if he's overwhelmed. He walks in, and it says in verse, go back into 2 Samuel 7, verse 18, then went King David in and sat before the Lord. He went in and sat before the Lord. Where is it that he went? I don't, we don't know exactly where that, that is. Could that be the tent where, of the tabernacle where inside is the Ark of the Covenant? We don't know exactly where, but David goes in and he sits down. Maybe he goes into the secret place. Maybe he goes into the place where he often would pray but he's just overwhelmed. He's just going to stop all of life around him. Shut out all of the noise. Shut out all of the distraction. And he sits down and it's just, it's just David and God. And he expresses in prayer a heart that is really a cup running over. Notice what he says. The first thing we're going to notice is he says to the Lord, in a sense, he says, you are my master, and I am your humble servant. You are my master, and I am your humble servant. Look what he says in verse 18. It says, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? And this was yet a small thing in thy sight, O Lord God. You see what he said there? He said, this is just so magnificent for me, but God, for you to do this, it, it, it's, I thought that was enough, but this was a small thing in thy sight, O Lord God. Like, it would have been enough just, that you, just what you did for me already, but, he says in the middle of verse 19, but thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come. You didn't just give me something today, but you gave me a promise for tomorrow. You told me what's going to, God, it, it, it just overwhelms me. He says, you've spoken of thy servant's house for a great while to come. And then an interesting statement at the, uh, that comes next and to, at the end of verse number 19. He says, and is this the manner of man, O Lord God? With that, the idea of that phrase there is, is this the manner of man? The idea is, why would you, is this the way that you work with humans? Is this the, it's really a, it's a bit of a, um, um, a rhetorical device, a rhetorical question. In other words, I think what David's saying here is this, there is no reason why you should bless a man the way that you have. No reason. 
to do it. I want you to notice something else that occurs here over and over. We won't be able to keep up uh, on the screen because we're going to hop over, but I just want you to, if you've got your Bible open on your lap, I want you to notice um, how David refers to the Lord in verse 18. He says, who am I, and what's the phrase? Go ahead, all together, who am I, what? Oh, are you with me, verse 18? How does he refer to the Lord? What is the title to which he addresses him? Ready? Let's do it together. He says, who am I, who? O Lord God. O Lord God. Now, if you skip down into verse number 19, same thing. He says, O Lord God. And then he says it again at the end of verse 19. O Lord God. Verse number 20, in the middle of the verse. O, for thou, Lord God. Same thing down in verse number 22. Thou art great, O Lord God. Verse number 25. And now, O Lord God. You skip down to... Verse 27, he expands upon it, Thou, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel. Verse 28, and now, O Lord God. O Lord God. You see down in verse number 29, For Thou, O Lord God, hast spoken it. Anybody ever, I I remember when I was in college, everybody's a theologian in in Bible college, right? Um, So, you know, people would... People would pray, and you know, it's it's. You ever get nervous praying in front of people? Who gets nervous praying in front of people? All right, a lot of people, lot 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 of you. You say, you know, I can just pray to the Lord, and there's other people around listening to me. It's a little nerve wracking, and so sometimes people do things in in prayer, and they'll they'll say, uh, um, uh, they'll say, Lord, just just just, or they have these words they repeat all the time, or some people will say God's name over and over and over, and Lord. I just pray, Lord, that, Lord, that you would do something, Lord. And I remember in college, these young, we'd all be like, well, you know, when you're doing that, are you really thinking about the Lord's name? Are you, are you taking his name in vain? You know, all these conversations that all these people would have. Did you notice how many times David uses God's name in this passage? I mean, just over and over. He loves the name of the Lord. He loves the name of God. He says it over and over and over again. Now, he doesn't say it without significance, but he just repeats God's name. And he uses a compound name of God. You noticed it, right? He says, Lord God. Lord God. Those are not, those are not, just, that, those are not just synonyms, but each name signifies something unique about the Lord. And when you put them together, it's powerful. It's literally the Hebrew Adonai Yahweh or Adonai Jehovah. And Adonai is the word that's the lowercase L-O-R-D, repeated often in the Bible. It's one of the most common names for God, the name Adonai. And it refers to him as being sovereign. He is the Lord. He is the master. He is the one who is in control of all things. And then, of course, the personal name of God is the name Yahweh or Jehovah. And usually that's in your English Bible, that's usually capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. But when it's combined with Adonai, you see the capital G, capital O, and a capital D. And so you have the combination of these names of Adonai and Jehovah. And over and over and over, David points out the sovereignty of God. And then Jehovah, most people feel that refers to the fact that he is the self-existent one, the all-sufficient one so that he needs nothing of anyone. He is independent on his own, so he is the the Holy One. He is sovereign. He is all-sufficient. And over and over again, David is uh, referring to God as really his sovereign Lord, his supreme master, and as the one who has complete control and the complete right to his life. And you notice that he refers to God as Adonai Yahweh, or Lord God, And then back in verse number 19, how does he refer to himself? So he's referring to God as as Lord God, but to himself in verse 19 he says, This was yet a small thing in thy sight, O Lord God, but thou hast spoken also of who? Yeah, thy servant. Thy servant. That, That he is the supreme and sovereign one, and David says, I am simply your humble servant. 
As David puts together that compound name of God and magnifies him, I've got a question for us this morning. How big is your conception of the Lord God? How big? We sang several songs this morning that talked about the sovereignty and the power of God. Some old and some new that spoke of how majestic and glorious and authoritative and uh, and, and all the words, omnipotence and omniscience and all the wonderful words we have to describe who He is. But we understand this morning that no matter how big, no matter how grand our conception of God is, it's not big enough. It's not large enough. And sometimes, you know, we live in a day and an age where everything tends to be increasingly about us. Have you noticed that? I'm not telling you anything new this morning that you haven't heard before. But it's good for us to remember and to take stock and understand that everything in society is about us. Day after day, we're marketed to by companies. They want some of our money, and they know the fastest way to our money is to focus on us and say, hey, your life will be so much better with my product. You, after all, don't you deserve it? Shouldn't you have this? Everything is catered to us. In child raising today, this, the child becomes the center of the home, and, and everything revolves around the child. And There's no wonder we grow up to be very self-obsessed individuals in this day and this age. Even in church life, even in church life, the focus tends to sometimes be focused on us. Well, how did the sermon make me feel? Or how does the music make me feel? Or how should um, um, just, just you know, get through all the, the stuff and just tell me how what you're saying is going to improve my life? Well, this passage really doesn't have anything to do with that. It's just time to stop and say, God, you are so great. And one of the most important things we can do is just stop for a minute Stop looking at ourselves and just focus on the glory and the wonder and the power of God. No matter how big your conception of God is, is not big enough. My favorite passage that speaks of this is Isaiah chapter 40. We could read the whole chapter, but I've just pulled out some selective verses from it. But in Isaiah 40, the... the, The prophet reminds us, he says in verse number 10 of Isaiah 40, Behold, behold the Lord God. That word behold means what? It just means stop. Just like David in the passage, what did he do? He walked in the middle of his busy day and he just sat down. He just sat down. Stopped everything that was going on. Just like the prophet here says, behold. Behold the Lord God. Notice it's the same compound name of our God. The Lord God. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and His arm shall rule for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His work before Him. He shall feed His flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with His arm and carry them in His bosom. And He shall gently lead those that are with young. You want to know more about Him? Verse 12. In the form of a question, who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? He says, is there anyone you know, is there anyone you know who has taken all of the oceans of the world and been able to measure them in his hand? Or take that same hand and meet it out or measured out the heavens, all of the universe with just a stretch of his hand. And weighed the mountains in scales. You've seen those, those old table scales that maybe they'll have in a lawyer's office or something like that, or uh, they were used in, in older times to, to measure things that you'd weigh it over on this side. I imagine all of the mountains of the, of the world, the great Rocky Mountains and, and the Himalayas, just let's compare these on a little table scale. Who's done that? Now, of course, this is relating to God in human terms, but speaking of God, he says, who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out the heaven with a a span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord or being his counselor hath taught him? With whom took he counsel? 
And who instructed him? You understand, we read this in his presence this morning. Right? Think about that. We read this in his, in his presence. With whom took he counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding? What, what, who has wisdom compared to what God has? And then verse 15, Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket, and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him, all nations before him are as nothing. And they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. How big is your conception of God? David is expressing that his view of God has been expanded. It's larger. Notice also in our text in 2 Samuel 7, that statement I pointed out before, at the end of verse number 19, where David said, And is this the manner of man, O Lord God? The point here is that God, there is no explanation. There is no explanation for why God should have dealt with David the way that he did. You see, we read the stories in the Old Testament David and Goliath, we get kind of impressed with David, don't we? Like we read about, wow, that's pretty cool. He killed a lion and a bear. Wow. Oh, yeah, he took down Goliath. Yeah, that's, yeah, David is my hero. We start to get impressed, impressed, impressed. But God knew the real story of David's heart. God knew, really, David is insignificant, just like we are. We're not great heroes in a story. We're not, they're not making movies of our lives. We don't have this, this, this anything within us. Even if they were, there'd be nothing truly within us of any kind of greatness. And David says, it's inexplicable. I don't understand. The, a prophet would, always, would also say, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Why would you, why God would you take time to consider us, but we also live in a very entitled day and age. We live in a very entitled, where we think sometimes, well, instead of us, the Bible talks about the love of God, and in our, in our generation, instead of us saying, and instead of us saying, why would God love me? Sometimes it's, the mentality is, well, of course God loves us. Of course God loves us. Whereas the response should be, as John Newton said, it's amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Why would you? Why would you love me? David says, why would you do this for me? You set me up as the king, and you've given a promise for my children and their children. Why would you do this? It's inexplicable. He doesn't try to rationalize or understand because he can't. He just is thrilled to death. He's just thrilled that God would work in his life. Are you thankful for what God has done for you? I mean, have you stopped sometimes and thought, God, why, why, did you, why would you allow me to do all this? It's beyond, listen, there's a step that goes from beyond. I think we're all thankful and grateful. I would hope that we are. We look around and we say, we say God, I'm just so thankful for how you've blessed me. But when have we stopped and, and said, I, I just so don't deserve any of this? He says, you are my master. I'm your humble servant. You've, you've blessed me beyond, wildly beyond what I could have imagined or deserved. The second theme here in, what, in David's response is not only does he say that you're my master, but he says to God, your plan is is magnificent. He just stops. And he doesn't just, he doesn't want his prayer to be shallow. He doesn't want his prayer to just be quick. He wants to just take time in his prayer. He wants to take time and expound to God and think and meditate and really think about why he's praising and worshiping God in this prayer. 
And so he, he begins by expressing that he's, his humility, and now he just wants to stop and think about the plan that God has given. Look at verse number 21. He says in verse 21, For thy word's sake, and according to thine own heart, hast thou done all these great things to make thy servant know them. He said, for thy word's sake, according to thine own heart. There's a few things that I notice in that verse. First of all, David recognizes that there was a promise that God made. He said, for thy word's sake. He said, God, you are going to do it because you promised it. Because you gave me this covenant. Because you've made this commitment. Your word, your promise is sure. For thy word's sake. But not only was a promise made, not only did God make a promise, but notice what he says here. There's a passion here. He says in, the, in, the, in verse 21, For thy word's sake and according to thine own heart. He said, God, this isn't something that I asked of you. I didn't come to you and, and ask you to do this, but God, your heart was for me. Your heart was for me. Your heart was for your people. His heart, listen, friends, in the promise that God gave to David about the Messiah, his heart was toward us in this promise. That God was passionate that his people needed a savior, that his people needed a deliverer, and that promise would be fulfilled through David. And God, and David says, God, you gave me your word. Aren't you thankful that God has given us his word? I mean, and, and think about it both ways. Literally, God has given us his word, but it's just like if I say, hey, I'm going to do this for you, and I give you my word. I give you my word. In the same sense, that is exactly what God has done. He says, I've given you my word, and when I've given you my word, I am giving you my word. I am committing. I am ensuring. I give you my word. David says, you've made a promise and your promise came from your heart. It was your passion to do this. This plan is beyond what I could have fathomed. You think about the story of humanity, that man was, was created perfect, chose to rebel against his creator. The all-powerful one chose to rebel. And you and I are the sons and daughters of rebellious parents who are the sons and daughters of rebellious parents going all the way back to the Garden of Eden and of, of Adam and Eve. We are, we are in a line of those who have rebelled against God. And God would have been just as righteous. God would have been just as holy. God would have been just as, as just if He had simply said, I am done with humanity. They will be destroyed and I will create a new race that will glorify me. But his plan was so marvelous that it's, he said, I want to redeem humanity. His plan is magnificent. There was a promise that was made. There was a passion for his people, and then his purpose was revealed. Notice at the end of verse 21, not only have you done all of this, Lord, You've done all these great things, and then finally, to make thy servant, what? Know them. To make thy servant know them. You revealed them to us. Do you know that throughout all of history, God has been a God who has made himself known? That he's revealed himself. I was having a conversation with somebody this week about that, and they were talking to me about Groups of people who get off into uh, uh, spiritual um, deception and, and groups and cults and these movements that are outside of the, the, the scriptures. And he, he was pointing out to me that one of the common threads in all of these groups is that the truth has been hidden and we have uncovered the, the real story. You know what I'm talking about? That we have found the hidden truth that's been hidden for centuries, it's been lost. And now we have recovered it. God has never operated that way. God has always been a revelatory God. He's always been a God to make himself known. 
Even when mankind has wandered, he has found a way to reveal himself to his people. He's the God who called out to Adam and Eve in the garden to invite them back into relationship. He's the God who spoke to Noah when the whole world was, uh, was falling away. He's the God, and then Noah, by the way, preached for 120 years, revealing the truth of God. God has always wanted to be known, so much so that we hold a miracle in our hands today. We have the complete revelation of God to mankind. I mean, just, just stop for a minute and think of the miracle of preservation. That There are more, there are, it's been a while since I brushed up on my data, um, so forgive me if I get some of this wrong, but there are more ancient copies there are more ancient manuscripts of your New Testament than any other uh, piece of literature from ancient times. Why? Because God used His church, and before that, He used His scribes to preserve His Word. Because God wants to be known. He's not just out there and aloof and unknowable, but He says... While there's a great, David would say, who am I? While he's unfathomable, he's not unknowable. You can know him. The God of the universe, your creator, has made a way for us to know him personally. He's revealed himself. In fact, the book of Romans talks about this. You notice a lot. I like to give you maybe a Sunday afternoon read. I'd encourage you to read Romans 11 if you want a Sunday afternoon read. But I'm going to give you a couple of verses. In Romans 11, the Apostle Paul talks about how God has revealed himself. And first, God revealed himself through Israel. And then God brought the church and he united Israel and the church into one people of God. It's a magnificent passage about God's plan that's revealed to mankind. And it finishes with this statement of just awe in Romans 11. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? Verse 36, for of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. That God has a marvelous and majestic plan for humanity and for your life individually. To Him be glory forever. Amen. And then 1 Corinthians 2, this is another wonderful passage about God's revelation. It says, as it is written, 1 Corinthians 2, as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. How could you know? How could you, if these things are in the mind of God, if God has a plan for his people and God is, is working on behalf of his people, how could we ever even know? Well, verse 10 answers, but God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. God has not only revealed himself through his word, but God did this for David. He does this for us. He has revealed himself by his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's ministry in the world today is to point the lost to salvation in Christ. He is the voice in our hearts that says, you need Jesus. You are a sinner. You are condemned, but Jesus is the answer. He is the voice that called you into relationship with Christ. And He is the voice that continues to take the Scriptures and reveal God the Father and Jesus Christ to us through the Word. God's plan is magnificent. And David only was given not even half of what we know of the plan of God. But he stops and he says, God, you've done this according to for your word, according to your heart, and you've made this known to me. So he keeps praising. He keeps worshiping. We come to verse 22, where now he says, God, I want you to know that there is no one like you. There is no one like you, O God. Verse 22, because of this, wherefore, because 
because you are my master, because you've revealed this magnificent plan for me, because of who you are and what you've done, God, there is no one like you. Wherefore, thou art great, O Lord God. Thou art great, for there is none like thee. Neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation in the earth is like thy people, even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself and to make him a name and to do for you great things and terrible. That word terrible is in the idea of if, if you were opposed to him and you saw it, you'd be filled with terror at the power of the, of the Lord. For thy land, before thy people, which thou redeemest to thee from Egypt, from the nations and their gods. What he's saying here is, is there is no one like you. you. You have done in the annals of history for your people. You delivered them from Egypt. You brought them out of bondage. You, you, you we're reminded of the days when the Red Sea was split open and God's people crossed over. He says, God, you are great. There's no one like you. Look what you've done for your people. In verse number 24, for thou hast confirmed thyself to thy people Israel to be a people unto thee forever. And thou, Lord, art become their God. He says, there's no one like you. You notice a couple of things here in verse 22. It says, wherefore thou art great. God is unique. God is special in his nature. In his nature. Just by virtue of who he is. If we were to, if you did not have, if you did not have the Bible, if you did not know anything about God, would that change one aspect of his greatness at all? No. He is in and of himself greatness. He is great. God is special in his nature. We go back to Isaiah 40. There's more in that passage that we didn't read. In Isaiah 40, thinking of all of the nations that worship other things, and you could substitute this idolatry for false religions and counterfeit gospels and, and for all of the things people worship instead of God or their false conceptions of God. The prophet says, to whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto him? The workman melteth the graven image. The goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold and casteth silver ch chains. What he's talking about here is just the, the, the silliness of idolatry. That in this day and age, in this day and age, people would, would look up and they'd say, well, there must be some greater power. So they would start to carve it out of wood or make it out of stone, chisel it out of stone or fashion it out of, of melted gold or silver. And they would take all this time and they would create an image and that image would be done and they'd say, there he is, I made God. I made God. It seems kind of, it seems kind of foolish to us, doesn't it? But the same thing happens today. The same thing happens today when people say something like this. Well, I just don't believe that God is like that. Have you ever heard anyone say that before? Well, I just don't believe that God would do that. Or that's not the God that I, that, that I believe in. Well, what have they just said? They may not have fashioned him with their hands, but they've fashioned him in their imagination. And they've created a concept of who they want God to be. God says, I won't be compared with anyone. I am who I am. To what you can melt a graven image or or decorate or or describe God however you want, but if it's not God as He's revealed Himself, it's pointless. Down in verse 25 of Isaiah 40. To whom then, he says again, to whom then will ye liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things? that bringeth out their host by number. He says, look into the heavens, look in the universe, look at the stars, the moon. 
I am the one. I bring out their host by number. He's the one who calls them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. God is unique in his character. He is unique just in who he is. But we also see here, not only is he, a, is he special in his nature, but he has a special people. Did you notice that in the passage, that he has a special people? In verse, in, back in 2 Samuel, in chapter 7, we saw the, the, the statement in verse number 22, Wherefore thou art great, O Lord. But then in verse number 23, not only is he, is he special in and of himself, but he talks about his special people. Look at verse number 23. And what one nation in the earth is like thy people, even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself, and to make him a name, and to do for you great things and terrible for thy land, before thy people which thou hast redeemed to thee from Egypt. He says, God, you have a special people. And we talked a little bit this morning about the plan of God through the ages, that God would call the people of Israel to be his special people. But you know, today, God still has a special people. Now, of course, Israel has not been forsaken. The people of Israel are still God's special people. But the book of Romans teaches us that we as the church have been included in that standing and in that status as being a part of the kingdom of God, as being a part of God's chosen people. In fact, it says also in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-10 through 10 in the New Testament, 1 Peter 2, 9-10, and 10, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. That word peculiar isn't the idea of strange, it's the idea of special, set apart in a unique status that we, as the church of God, combined with the, the eternal people of God, Israel, are brought into one new man in Christ Jesus, the Bible says, and we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a peculiar people. That when you become a part of the church of God, not a member of a local church, but when you are saved, when you become a member of the universal church of God, that you are part of a special people. And you are called to show forth His praises of the one who's called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Verse number 10, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. He says, God, this is who you are. This is what you've done. Because of that, he finishes expressing this final worship to the Lord. You look at verse 25, 2 Samuel 7 and verse 25. And now, O Lord God, the word that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as thou hast said. Now, David praying for God to do it isn't going to make it do it. God's already promised it. But David joins in and he says, yes, Lord, I love your plan. I believe in your promise. I want to see you do it. Just like when we pray, thy kingdom come, is that going to usher in his kingdom? Well, no, of course not. His kingdom will come when he says it will come. But essentially, David is praying the same prayer. He's saying, God, do it. God, I love your plan. I want to see it come. I'm taking my desires and aligning them with your desires. In verse 26, and let thy name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. And let the house of thy servant David be established before thee. For thou, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, hast revealed to thy servant, saying, I will build thee a house. Therefore hath thy servant found in his heart to pray this prayer unto thee. And now, O Lord God, Thou art that God, and thy words be true, and thou hast promised this goodness unto thy servant. Therefore now, let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, that it may continue forever before thee. For thou, O Lord God, hast spoken it. And with thy blessing, 
Let the house of thy servant be blessed forever. He finishes his prayer and just reminds us when we see it that God is worthy of worship. And can I say this this morning? The greatest expression of your worship, the greatest expression of my worship is not just in how loud we sing the song. It's not just in how excited we get or how expressive we get, but the greatest expression is an undivided heart of love for the Lord. And David's love is just so evident in what he says. God, you've done so much. You've overwhelmed me. God, you're so great. God, I love you. Jesus said in Matthew 22, the greatest commandment of all, thou shalt what? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. If we didn't know everything we knew about God, He would still be worthy of our love, but He's revealed Himself to us so that we might love Him. So that we might love Him. You say, okay, so what's the point? What is the point of the message? What am I supposed to go out of here and do? Well, we're supposed to go out of here and do exactly what David did. We're supposed to go out of here and do exactly what Jesus told us to do. And that is love the Lord, our God. The Lord thy God, the same combination of names that David used. Love the Lord thy God with your heart, your soul, and with your mind. All of it. All of it. We always like to finish, though, by pointing out how Jesus Christ fulfills this passage. Everything that we were revealed, everything that has been revealed to us about God and His glory through what David said, the greatest revelation, the greatest revelation of who God is, is not David's prayer, that's just the setup. The greatest revelation of who God is, is what we read in the Gospels, the life of Jesus Christ. You want to know who God is, you need the full picture of the Old Testament, but you want to see who God is, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. 1 Timothy 3.16, 1 Timothy 3.16, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. You understand what Paul is saying in this verse? Saying you want to understand who God is? He is revealed in Jesus. Now, but notice this, that God was manifest in the flesh. Wait, wait, it all comes together now. The God who meets out the heavens with a span. That all of the nations of the earth are what? They're just a drop in the bucket. The God who is magnificent and glorious He is the God, the great God, the worthy God. He is the one who humbled himself to the manger. He is the one. The one who David sat in awe and wonder and just behold your God. He is the one that humbled himself, not just to the manger, but to the cross. It is the God of the universe who stepped down to humanity to make a way of salvation for us. That is a God worth loving. That is a Savior worth worshiping. He is a worthy one. So Christian, are you loving the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, all your mind? Or could you identify this morning something in your life that's robbing him of the worship he deserves. What would it be? This morning, as we go to prayer, as we sing a final song, you have the opportunity to rededicate that heart of worship to him, to go out of here with a renewed love that Jesus spoke of. There might be someone here or watching, and you're uncertain. I mean, I speak to those who are believers, and you might say, you know, I, I, I believe in Jesus I guess, 
but you're just uncertain if you really have a true relationship with him. Listen, he is a God worth loving. What we just read, that God, that magnificent God became a man. He died on the cross. This is the wonder, this is the glory of the cross, that it was God who died on the cross. It was God who gave his life for us. It was God who died, was buried, rose again, and now invites us into a loving relationship with him. Have you ever received Jesus Christ as your Savior? If you've never done that, why don't you do that today? Put your faith, put your trust in Christ, in Christ alone. Would you bow your heads this morning with me? We'll come to prayer now. Heads bowed and eyes closed. It's an important moment in the service today. This is the opportunity for each of us to respond to the scripture that we've just studied. Respond to the message that was preached. So, has there been a time in your life where you have, like David said, who am I? I am just a sinner. I need Jesus to save me. Have you ever personally called on the name of Jesus to be your Savior? If you've never done that, I would invite you to do that right now, whether you're in here in this room or you're watching. If you've never received Jesus, would you in your heart just pray a simple prayer? Say, Lord Jesus, I understand that I'm a sinner. But Lord, I believe that you died and rose again for me. And today I ask you to save me. Would you pray a simple prayer of faith to the Lord Jesus Christ? Christian, as we go to prayer, what are the things you've allowed to come into your life that are robbing God of the glory that he deserves. Take a moment as the piano plays to spend some time in prayer with the Lord. today, we pray that as we finish, that our hearts would be lifted heavenward, that you would receive all the glory and praise. Thank you that we had the privilege to gather in your name today, that we have the privilege of being called your people, and so we pray that we would, we would leave here giving you greater glory and greater honor in the lives we live. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.